Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, DGens and DGenettes, to another episode of the Alfalfa Podcast. We are four radically moderate entrepreneurs and investors swimming in the messy gray ocean, serving up alpha in money, politics, and life. We are Nick Urbani, Eric Johansson, Stephen Cesaro, and I am Arman Asadi. All links at alfalfapod.com. Make sure to hit subscribe wherever you are listening or watching on YouTube and follow us on the socials. And most importantly, hop in our Discord to join the community for the after party and more alfalfa. Welcome to the Alfalfa Podcast. We are back with a politics episode on Iran. Not Iran, okay? Oh, Iran. Let's just like start with the basics. entire family pronounces it. Yeah. Let's just start with the basics. Back home, we say Iran. Oh, man. Even Biden does it. He does it like egregiously. Was it Biden the other day? That did? Yeah. No. No, it wasn't Biden. What's, wor- what's worth him doing that or uh, Obama when he used to say Pakistan? Yeah, that was that was too that much. That always used to drive me crazy. Was- that was too much. <laughs> but, no, but it, see, Pakistan is like, that's like you're really trying. Iran is like you don't even have to try. What word is there in the English language where you say the I in and of itself and then the it's rest like of the It's like when word. people say Oregon instead of Oregon. It's worse. Iran is way, it's way worse. It's just like, I think Bush started that. Pretty sure it was Bush. He started a lot of things. Yeah. Some of them ended in tragedy. Hell of a golf swing though. Yeah. Let me Man, that watch guy. me hit this drive. <laughs> still my, I, I think probably my favorite clip from the internet of all time. I think I, still. I totally agree. <laughs> I totally agree. Oh man. It was anyway. real, right? Like there was no break in that. Like that's exactly how it went down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that for certain. <laughs> I just want it to be true, but I'm pretty sure it is. Okay. So we're here to talk about um, Iran. And um, I, I'll be honest, I feel like I need someone else to get this this going. This is a, this is a very challenging topic for me. Mm. Um, there's, there's a lot to, to break down. The overall uh, kind of structure of this episode is to talk about what is going on today in Iran what appears to be a, a revolution in the makings. I think history is happening before our eyes. And then transitioning to history, um, how we got here, what really uh, has been going on, what is the what is the historical context of the situation, and then what are the future consequences of, regardless of how this plays out, what does this mean for the region, what does this mean for the world? So there's a lot to break down and I guess the reason I'm saying it's it's challenging for me just to give you guys some context. I don't think I don't think you guys even know this, but like, so I have always tried to have in the back of my pocket an option to go to Iran. So um, I'm an American, born and raised in California, but my parents are from Iran, and Persian culture, food, language has been a huge part of my life. Um, and I have heard stories my entire life, stories, anecdotal, but also pol- politics, history, you know, my entire life. And not just only because of my attachment to this land do I want to go, but also because simply as just like a person who loves world travel, I can't think of a better, cooler, more interesting place to go than Iran. 
And there's a traveler that I love, Drew Binsky. Um, for those of you that don't know him, he's an amazing YouTuber. And his favorite country in the world is Iran. Went to every single country in the world. And he's like, it's my favorite country in the world. And then Isn't Anthony the, Bourdain. Bourdain said that same thing. Favorite country in the world, Anthony Bourdain. And it's like, fuck, man. Like, I want to go so bad. And that comment of favorite country in the world is even in this political climate of these ayatollahs running a theology dictatorship. And yet they're still saying that. So I've always tried to keep this in, in, in my back pocket as a possibility, but I actually realized, and I've been trying to plan this trip. I want to go with my dad. It would be so meaningful. But just to, this example will give you so much context of what it's like there. For me to go, first of all, because I am a descendant of an Iranian person, I have to serve in the military. Like, if you visit, they can literally be like, hey, thanks for stopping by. Uh, go serve your two years. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> what? So you could pay off, apparently, somebody, but nothing is black and white there. It's all gray. They interpret the law as they like on an individual basis. That's one thing. The second thing is we talk a lot of shit on this podcast. And over the last five to 10 years, I've put a lot of content out there. There's no telling what they would say the moment I arrive at that border. Like, you know, they Google your name, blah, blah, blah. Okay, you got some videos on porn and guns and oh, even all these. And regardless of this episode, regardless of this episode, I realized recently that I already am at risk. I could easily just be, you know, how many journalists, how many scientists, how many people have just been like, you're a spy, you're going to, you know, maximum security prison and God knows what happens to you. And most, some of them don't ever come back. So I've recently realized that, you know, like in soccer, when you're getting a red card and you get it for a dumb reason. You might as well just get it for a good reason. You want to send it. You want to send, send it? Let's send it, man. Let's okay, send well, it. Okay, well, just so you're clear, uh, my wife's from Iran, and she even told me before this episode, she's like, you better be careful what you say, because like, we intend to go at some point, and she's like, uh, what you say here might impact you know, your future, and uh, I'm cognizant of that. I don't know that I want to send it. You got no, no, I can tell you right now, you have no line. There's no way. I mean, you're already, what, that's the thing. It's already a red card. It's already too late. Well, it's already too late. So it has hold nothing on. to do with commentary about Iran. It's already too late. If they want to have a problem, they already have a problem. Well, hold on. I grow a pretty decent mustache. That already helps me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and the fact that I'm, uh, half Chinese, I think also helps me because like uh, China and Iran are kind of like in cahoots. I feel like I could, I could, I could make it through um, if I just tiptoe my way out of this episode. <laughs> I think you'll be fine. And, and look, the point is, like I always say this to people, it's like I have way more reason to be concerned than the average person. People from any country in the world, you know, they can happily before all this chaos that's been going on right now could go to Iran, no problem. And if you're an American, like a Drew Binsky or an Anthony Bourdain or whatever, you got to, you got to, when you go, you have to have a guide. That's kind of the requirement, essentially. It's like North Korea. Um, I don't know. I don't know how North Korea is, but yeah, you got to have like a, a tour guide. Um, and yeah, so I share that to say, like, 
I don't know. I, I guess I'm just, uh, this is a lot for me because um, it's been, it's always been a risk to not just be out there as a public figure and maybe want to go, but always, but to actually now hit this straight on. All right. That's enough of a fucking preamble. So let's get into it. What is going on in Iran? So um, everybody knows essentially that a woman was walking down the street, you know, imagine you, your sister, your cousin, young girl, and she had some hair exposed. Pretty much everybody does. Unless they're like very religious and conservative, most women wear their scarves like halfway on. That's just like how they rock it because they're required to. Walking down the street gets pulled over by this so-called morality police. And um, with this new president, uh, things are stricter with this president. And the president is just a puppet. It's just a fucking puppet. This is a dictatorship. And the morality police, which is basically like a secret police, pulls her over, takes her into custody, beats the fucking living shit out of her. She goes into a coma and she dies. That's that's happening like that. That actually that's not the first one either. This stuff happens. And, you know, it was my one of my cousins said this to me. He's like, Armand, just imagine like a boiling cup of water. And they added one more fucking drop to that boiling cup of water and it is exploding. That's really what's happening here. Yes, this is about women's rights. Yes, this is about human rights and the atrocities that have been going on in this country for so long. But these people have had enough times 10. And the people that are out in the streets protesting this are young 20-year-olds with aggression, energy, and this is the straw that broke the camel's back. And this was the last straw for them. This is this was it. It was like in a in a in a climate where, and I think that it's so funny how things are interrelated. COVID, the pandemic, George Floyd. I think all of these precursors actually have made this moment possible massively because if it wasn't for the world watching what happened in the United States which I think was for a different reason it was for a specific reason and it evolved into something that got very confusing but it still stood as a framework for hey when something is over the line and enough is enough people now have a model for how to show up in the streets and get results. And you could argue George Floyd got tremendous results for society and moving things in the right direction, at least in the United States. And in Iran, this is not about this individual case. This is about 43 years, if not even longer, of just absolute human rights atrocities and these people living in a prison a prison and they have had enough. And these young people that are out in the streets are kind of like me in the sense that they've been hearing these stories their entire lives and they are filled with anger because they have been told about the glory of what Iran and the Persian culture is and used to be and how they are living under a rock and how this is just completely, completely fucked and they're filled with anger, and that's why they're out in the streets. But there's also a lot of hope. So 
There's a lot going on. So like this, uh, this brave woman, Masha, Masha Amini, I believe is her name. Masha, I, I believe Masha chose to die for this cause. Like I, I believe that the morality police probably gave her an option. They said like either reform and we'll let you back or else. And she's like, fuck it. Fuck it. I will die for this. That's how I believe it is. And what an inspiration. Because I think her sacrifice is what's inspiring this revolution. And, and, and it's hard. interesting. It's hard not to get emotional. I, I see the videos out there of citizens in the street. I see videos of women in the street burning their hijab. And it's like, how do you not get swept up in emotion by this? It's like, I hope, I hope that this is the revolution. I hope that this sticks because, you know, there's been a lot of false starts with it, with any, with any revolution in any culture. There, there are a lot of um, stops and starts and, you know, it, it takes a lot to be the one. So, man, I hope this is the one. I, I, I do too. And there's a lot, we'll get into future consequences later, but I think there's a lot of pent up emotion in every way in that country right now. There's a lot of optimism, but there's also a lot of fear because no one knows what's coming next. No one knows if this is even going to be successful. No one knows how many people are going to have to die for this to, to, to happen. One thing that I think it's very important context to understand about this country. Um, I cannot understate how proud these people are of their culture. These are almost just, it's absolutely crazy how ingrained poetry, music, um, philosophy, mathematics, architecture, beauty is in the culture of these people. And I say that that they're proud today, even given that this world that they're living in. So you have to imagine how proud they used to be when it was an open society, when they were able to display their good nature, their art, their whatever they had to the world before 1979, when this revolution happened and this latest regime has been in power. Even still, they are proud. So you have to understand, these mullahs, these, the Ayatollah, these group of religious leaders that somehow got into power in this country, they have one goal, and that is to eradicate all of the pride around the Persian culture that these people have. They want nothing to do with any of that. They don't even like Nowruz. They don't like Persian New Year. They don't like the history of places like Persepolis. They don't support it. They don't fund it. They want to get rid of everything. Because what do they care about? Using this fucking religion as a excuse to use and abuse and rule a group of people and keep and take them back. You know, there's a famous video I posted on Instagram. It's like they asked the Shah. And again, I'm not like some big monarchy Shah supporter. And we'll talk about this, Eric, when we talk about history. But it's like, yes, things were better, but they weren't great before the revolution. That's obviously why there was a revolution. But they asked the Shah, they're like, you know, what's going to happen if this Ayatollah, if this religious figure takes over from you? And the Shah means king, right? They asked the Shah, what's going to happen? And he's like, it will take this country back 1,500 years. No question. And that's exactly what has happened. This is arguably the most backward society in the world other than North Korea. 
I mean, it's it's terrifying there. It's scary. And these people can't sing. They can't dance. They can't fucking go and date in public. They can't do anything. All under the guise of this fucking religion. And, and, and I want to make something clear. This is not me bashing on Islam as a religion. Um, it's bashing these people, these sick, corrupt people that are using religion to rule people and go to these absolute, you know, it's all interpretation. They're just using it. They're abusing it. And they care about nothing. They care about nothing other than, than political power and stealing money as much as humanly possible. And look at what it's done. They're rejects in the world. They've turned this nation into a rogue nation. These are educated. It's one of the youngest nations in the world. Thank God, because that's why there are so many people in the streets. Educated. 60% of university students are women. This is not some country with a bunch of like, and again, there are plenty of like religious people in Iran. But one thing people don't understand is like they imagine this as just like some desert country. No, this is a, this is a country of very educated people. And they've been able to try to stay educated, even though they've been living under this regime. These are strong women, as Eric knows. <laughs> These are proud women. And when you fuck with them, as they have for 43 years, and then they've been hearing from their parents how awful things have been, you push that line. And what you have now is one of the most beautiful, courageous things I've ever seen in my life. You have women living under a dictatorship on the front lines leading a revolution. Tell me where you've seen that in the world. God, I'm getting emotional thinking about it, man. It's unbelievable. It's fucking crazy. I feel so bad for these people. I hope I hope this is the one. I hope that I hope this is the one. I think it's important to give a bit of context uh, historically, right? Like, how did we get to this point? And, um, you know, I, it's hard, right? So I'm an outsider. Uh, my wife was born in Iran. She lived there until she was 17 years old. Her her folks lived there until they were in their 50s. And I'm talking to them. I'm, I'm reading, hopefully, credible sources. I'm reading, like, the encyclopedia to try to understand, like, how do we get to this point? And what I learn in talking people is like <clears throat> well back in the 20s uh it's it's about oil right it's, it's always about freaking money and resources that's the way it always works out so england the uk wanted oil from the region right and um they they installed the shah's dad reza reza shah back in 1921 and the idea was that this individual would secure their uh, oil resources in the region. And, and, and he did up until there was uh, an uprising in, in the early 50s. And I forget this guy's name. It starts with an M. But this Mossadegh. guy's... Mossadegh. Yeah. So yeah. that guy came out and he, he destroyed the, uh, the oil resources of England. And England's like, well, fuck that. Uh, we'll install somebody new. They installed the Shah. That's that's who we call the Shah. It's, the, it's Reza Shah's son, Muhammad Reza, I believe is, is what, what he's called. Uh, and he ruled from 53 to 79 when when the the revolution happened. And and I think the most interesting part about about this revolution is that <coughs> that that revolution in the late 70s 
I, as a Westerner, I always thought like, oh, here we go again, intervening and fucking shit up for, for, for other nations. Like that, that revolution in the late seventies was actually internally led. And it, and right. as it, as it often starts, uh, you have economic instability. You, you see this like in Germany, you see this like with, with Hitler rising to, to prominence, you see like it all starts with economic instability. People have like unrest and they like, so in the late seventies, there was like rampant inflation globally. Like the U S was going through rampant inflation. It was like a, it was a tough time. So the people of Iran are upset. You know, they, they've already gone through a, an amazing Renaissance. First of all, like, uh, from the, from the fifties to, to late seventies was a time of prosperity up until it wasn't right. right. Like, and then when, when inflation and uh, probably global recession hits, people are like, well, this guy's fucking it up for us. They turn to a charismatic leader, the Ayatollah, who, who is uh, a scholar, like studied at Cambridge. Like, is, is, like the Ayatollah is coming out with, with ideas to say, Let, let's, I mean, they're radical ideas, but he's saying like, let's get rid of this guy. Let's go back to our Islamic roots. Let's like, let's recapture our, our greatness and people attach to that. And, and I'm seeing parallels in many different uh, civilizations, including the United States today, where, you know, like there's, there's economic instability and people are saying like, well, we just need this new leader to drain the swamp and be this like new voice. And like, uh, you know, like we, you never know what you're going to get on the other side. Like it, it always seems great. Change always feels great at the moment. You never really know what you're going to get on the other side. And I think from my perspective, it's like you wanted change. You got, you got dramatic change and like you didn't realize like that it could get worse. And, and I think that's where we land now. It's like Ayatollah came in and it got worse, like way worse. It got way worse. Um, I think you, you mentioned this, but just to, there's been a ton of intervention. And in 1953, that was a doctor, Mossadegh. He was democratically elected. And his job was similar in that he said, hey, there's been all this intervention. We're selling our oil for cheap. We're getting taken advantage of. We need to nationalize our resources. You know, simple kind of just like, hey, we're, we're, we've become a puppet nation. We need to take back control, take back our pride. CIA came in, the jackals, and it was one of the easiest coups like ever. You know, they just did some propaganda and quickly got rid of the guy, you know, sent some CIA jackals into Tehran. This was in 1953. So we, the United States, came in and changed that. And then you got the Shah's son. He's there until 1979. And guess what? Yeah, it was prosperous. The, you know, the Iran had like a good reputation in the world. They were able to export and import and people visited and American business people would go to Tehran on business. And it was just an open, normal country in the Middle East. Right. Oh, and you see you see photos of like the people at that time. They, they look like they're prospering. Women look Thriving. like they're they're enjoying themselves on the beach, like in bikinis and stuff. It just like looks half Joyous. naked and and by the way there were christians jews zoroastrians and muslims every religion under the sun there was a respect for choice there was an individual level of freedom now could you talk shit about the shah really openly no going to jail could you do certain things against the monarchy no you probably get fucking murdered <laughs> so there was secret police there were people that you didn't mess with 
So kind of similar in that way where, okay, if you, if you mess with the monarchy, if you get a little too Marxist on us, you know, like one of my family members is basically a Marxist, a, a woman, my, my mom's cousin, jail, Evin prison for years. So I've heard all these stories. I hear what it's like inside that prison. I hear what you can and can't say. And they reformed her. It's like, okay, we're going to reform you. You mentioned another thing as well, though. The, 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 the revolution in 1979 is so, complex and there are so many layers to it you're absolutely right that ayatollah khomeini was um an inspirational figure because he obviously took advantage of a lot of the economic instability uh the injustices that were happening the fact that if you weren't on the shah's team you you were not going to survive but he didn't take them back to their islamic roots because this is something i want to also differentiate about iran in this in this uh, region of the world iran doesn't have islamic roots iran is the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire has roots that are far, far deeper, and that's why they're so proud. They have so much history, not just militarily, but you know the education that they've put, things that they've created and put out into the world. And pre-Islam was Zoroastrianism, and Zoroastrianism is the core religion of that of that of that country of that people. Essentially, Islam was conquesting just like Catholicism was. And Islam showed up and was able to to conquer and take over and install Islam in that country and its people. But there's always been a deep resent, not every single person you ask, because some of them are just generationally become Muslim now, but there is a deep resent toward Islam in Iran. And that's why they have their own version of it. Now, I don't know much about Islam. I don't know much about the religion. I've never been religious. But, you know, Shia Islam is a very different form of Islam than Sunni Islam. And that's why there's so much conflict in that region as well, even just amongst these people. So it's almost like the way of being like, fine, we'll do it, but we'll do it our way when you make somebody do it. So There's so much resent that has been built up. And a lot of people imagine that Iran is a country of very observant Muslims. After the revolution in 1979, all the Jews had to leave. All the Baha'i had to leave. All the Christians, not all, but mostly had to leave. Because all of a sudden there's this religious figure who's like, anything you do that is against Islam is bad and you know, we'll fuck you. So they had to leave. That's why so many people, the diaspora, that's why so many Persian people had to leave Iran in 1979. But the people that are left are resentful. And then instead of things getting better, not only did they get worse, they got catastrophic. It's been disastrous for them for the last 43 years. And sure, there are some people in that country that are going to speak up and say, no, 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 these young people are wrong. You know, the lady was wrong. You know, some there are some, of course, conservative religious people, but the majority of people are very young. And and this is what people also don't understand is like the women in Iran, the people in Iran, the young people in Iran, just because the law states that they can't drink, they can't do all these things, they can't do drugs. Do you think they don't do that stuff? Oh, it just happens in their home. Yeah. Happens in their home, high, high, high drug rate. They're all having sex. They're all breaking all the rules. It's just happening underground. It's not like they're walking around like, yes, like this all the time. Yes, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. I won't break any rules. They're constantly pushing it. But now that they got pushed so hard, that's why they're in the streets. This is about much more than, than just what happened to Mahsa Amini. This is about an opportunity for revolution. Yes, Stephen. What percentage of the country 
would you say doesn't vibe with like the whole religious like infrastructure? Because I, I don't know as an outsider, is it like is it a fifty fifty thing? Is it like ninety ten? But this ten percent is just so powerful. Like what 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 is the split there approximately? Do you know? No, I think this is very very popular. Um, this is very very popular. I mean, I think that people want. Like, like, look, do some people want to exercise their religion and wear hijabs? Yeah, but it's a choice. Just it's a choice. It should be a choice. It's a freedom of choice. So like, do they want to, are they all anti-Islam? No, no. Some of them would, sure, they're, they're Muslim and they'd like to be, but some of them, most of, many of them are agnostic and they have to act like they're not, you know, because they'll get in trouble. So like how religious are most people? I would say not, not. You know, if you look at it statistically, if you take a snapshot and you go to Wikipedia, it'll be like, yeah, this country is 95% Muslim. Yeah, but what, you, what choice do they have? What are you talking about? Like you going down the street talking to people, the words that come out of these people's mouths when you talk to them is like, man, they are angry. They are angry. They don't want this shit. They don't want a government ruled by religion. They want it to be a choice, just like any of us do. They don't want to be mandated to wear hijabs. They don't want to be, uh, they don't want women to not have the right to go to soccer games. You know, <laughs> like how funny is that? It's a I joke. Know. It's just, it's hard because like, and here's where, where I'm struggling is it's because there's so much nuance. It's not just good versus evil here. Um, when you, when you, when you're wanting change, it has to change into something. And, um, you know, like, Another prominent force that's been fighting against the Ayatollah for a long time is called the, the Mujahideen. And, and that's, that seems, as an outsider to me, like another oppressive regime. And they were formerly uh, labeled as like a terrorist organization in the West, like up until 2012. Like they've been fighting against Ayatollah for a long time. And it's like, okay, so you want to rid him of power and then like, okay, so what's next? I think like the the grass can always be greener when you're thinking about change, but it's like, that's why we're in this place. It's because you think that, oh, well, change is good and it's like, it doesn't always turn out in a positive outcome. It nailed it. It would be an absolute disaster if the Mujahideen took over. Uh, that would just be literally like another shade of what they're already experiencing right now. It would just be absolutely terrible. But the but thing what is, is that what that's- is what is the difference between the political views? Because for for us in the West, it all kind of seems like the same thing sometimes. But obviously, there's there's some difference there, even if they are both sort of fundamentalist. The, the, we don't even know what people want because they don't have an opportunity to vote for it. The only vote that they've ever had is a puppet president under a theocracy. So there's an Ayatollah, which is the religious figure that is in charge. That is the preeminent ruler of the country and has been since 1979. And there's, there's been two or two of those. And, you know, cause the previous one died and they have these puppet presidents that they put into place. And in 2009, there was one of these so-called presidents that ran under a sort of green party perspective. Like his, his whole take was like green energy and sustainability. That was so amazing and radical to people that they used that as a vehicle to get behind to cause a revolution. So it, it started to look like what they were really doing was getting behind this president for his green ideas, but that wasn't what it was. It was just another vehicle to say, okay, cool, let's get in the streets to support this guy and potentially topple the entire Ayatollah system and this regime 
toward toward a more democratic system. You know what happened? Thousands of people died. And then you know what happened? They voted and he lost. Well, let's, <laughs> he let's, lost. Let's look uh let's go forward looking a little bit because I think um it's really interesting how um the US particularly chooses to get involved or not in in specific things and I'll I'll go tinfoil tinfoil EJ a little bit here. It's like we just shipped off another 1.4 billion to Ukraine today. We won't get involved here. Why? Why? And you know like I want to know what what happens if the Ayatollah regime falls now in Iran? Like they've been a a power in that Middle East region, particularly with all the Islamic nations, they've been the power. Like what happens when they, if, if they fall, like, you know, what, what is the outcome there? Like what, I mean, it, this is Yeah, dramatic. I'm very curious about this too. I mean, you know, Stephen, you're, you're familiar with Zihan's work and his perspective of geopolitics, not just in that region, but around the world. And one of the things I quickly learned from his perspective was that he said that like over this next decade, assuming everything kind of stays the way it is, there's going to be a big battle between Iran and Saudi Arabia for control of that region. And also Turkey is kind of in a position where they're thriving economically to come in and play some sort of game or balance with these two nations and either get involved militarily or kind of stay back and watch them duke it out. How do you see this playing out if there is actually like instability in Iran and a complete regime change? <laughs> uh, I mean, the the short answer is I, I have absolutely no idea. And uh, <laughs> history, I think history has uh, shown that uh, trying to predict how these sort of uh, regime changes in that region will go is like a complete fool's errand. Uh, it seems to always go badly. Right, like right, when, so. when we removed, we uh, we removed Saddam Hussein, who was like this uh, awful dictator. But Saddam Hussein kept the whole freaking region under control. We removed yeah. him, and then it just spiraled way out of control into ISIS, ISIL, et cetera, et cetera. Like it just goes back to the idea: where you you want change, but you don't realize what's on the other side of the fence. Yeah, and it's it's so confusing, right? Because from our perspective, if you don't really see what's going on, you're like, wait, why are the why like? Iran and Saudi Arabia like hate each other, right? And if you're from our perspective, right, you're like, wait, why do these two Islamic nations like hate each other and fight? And you throw Israel in there, and then they they both sort of hate Israel, but it seems now like Iran hates Israel more. So Israel's been kind of like, ah, well, maybe maybe we don't hate the Saudis as much. Maybe we'll you know send them some weapons or something. And yeah, and it it's 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 like this like triangular clusterfuck there and then one one reason iran is like really important uh geographically is because the they the, the strait of ormuz runs through there and it's this super critical oil shipping lane especially for china right like that's china's like direct route to like getting oil and they they do not produce energy internally anywhere near the rate to sustain their people and their economy um so that's just like a super critical choke point. I mean, I, I personally like don't understand our Iran policy at all. And it seems like we don't understand it either yeah, we because don't understand it. we the have two parties and one of them wants to basically, you know, ship pallets of cash over there and let them build a nuke in 10 years or something. And then the other party is like, wait, what the hell are you doing? That's like terrible. Um, and I try to understand the perspectives from 
each side because it, it surely can't be as simple as one one or the other because you know certain elements of each perspective seem ridiculous uh to me um so yeah it's it's we don't know what we're doing we don't know what the future holds like we've been meddling in that region forever and just seemingly have made it worse so i, I don't know what's going to happen i it, it does seem like lately that we have seen a bit more of a schism between like the sort of dollar financialized version of the Western world and this like split off to like the sort of um, hard asset sort of, uh, you know, access of evil type, uh, you know, Russia, China, uh, Iran, right? Like they're, they're, they're kind of like, it, it seems like they're, they're getting together to do things like, like uh, produce and purchase uh, oil, like to transact in oil, not in dollars. We've heard of Iran using like Bitcoin and, you know, so I, I, I'm assuming that that is going to become more and more of a, uh, you know, cornerstone of, 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 of geopolitics in the near future, especially if we're right. And like oil, you know, goes to two or $300 a barrel eventually, like the strategic port importance of a place like Iran, like that is such a, like an oil producing nation that is sort of aligned, you know, at least in, in sort of a, a like, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my f- friend way with, with the likes of, you know, Pakistan and, and, and Russia and China, like, yeah, it's, it's a powder keg. And it, I, I think the strategic importance is going to go up and in, in the coming years. Um, I, I'm w- one thing I did see, like, in, in chart kind of researching this and it's funny you bring up Zion um, cause a lot of people have been asking him to comment on, is this revolution? Like, is this it? Is it really happening? And he, like his response was sort of like, no, like this has been happening since 2009, basically pretty regularly. And there's just like a questioning of like, is it really real this time? Is something really going to happen this time? Or is this like just something that we've latched onto the story of because of social media and the the horrific things happening with like women and you know the the story is really bad. But I'm I'm curious, Armand, like if you think it is different this time, why is this different than all of the other protests we've seen over the last like decade and a half? That's an interesting that's an interesting thought that he's sharing. Um, but I would argue social media is reality. Social media is what enables and allows for revolutions to take place now. What lacked in 2009 was technology and social media. The virality of these videos and word getting out and people being able to take decent quality footage on their phones and get it onto the internet has allowed us to be doing a podcast episode on it, has allowed the world to be exposed to this idea, has allowed important figures to step up and talk about support. And then the question becomes, well, what is support? What can we do with a rogue nation where we have absolutely no ability to send them money? We can't send them money even. We can't even donate to these people. We can't support them. We can't send them weapons. We have no relations with them. What are we supposed to do? The best thing that we can do is share the content, get the videos out there, get it into the collective consciousness, what is actually happening, why it matters, show these people support. Because if you don't show them support, they lose energy, they they lose momentum. Right now, what they have is momentum, they have energy, and they feel a sense of international support that I would say is still actually lacking 
We need two, three, four times more international support and recognition of what's going on to actually see regime change, because this is going to take a lot of people and I hope not too many lives to make this happen. People are coordinating. They're making this happen. They want the change. And so what would be the cause that this change would not happen? Well, the government has already started shooting. The police have already started shooting. There's so many ways that this might play out. It really depends on how long people can withstand loss of life and how coordinated they can be to get around and make things happen and show up every single day. This isn't the last time it was not happening in every major city in Iran. You know, you had it again in 2019, but I think that's a poor take because this has only happened three times and this is the third mm -hmm. time. The previous time was in 2019. It was quick. They came out. They just fucking started murdering everybody. 1,500 people died. And then in 2009, you had millions of people in the streets marching and it ended with a, with a, with a rigged election. They voted. So, they were like, let's show up and vote for the guy. That will be the way that we get this more liberal guy in power. And then they literally said, what's his name? The monkey one, Ahmadinejad. Fucking the monkey one who was saying, let's wipe Israel off the map. They got that guy in power. Of course, this is all, it, it's all a con. So to your point on social media, I saw that Elon sent, uh, he, he enabled access to Starlink uh, yeah. for the citizens of Iran to be able to access the internet, even if, uh, even if the government shuts off access. I mean, that's, that's a huge, strong play, strong support. Huge. Do they, I don't do know. They, do they have access to, like, I, th this is like a question I had because it, it, for, from an outsider's perspective, it's like this weird dynamic where it seems like a pretty Westernized, like an youthful people, but like, also under this like simultaneous like oppressive thumb of like a religious dictatorship, right? So I'm curious, like, do like do they have access to Twitter? Do they have access to Facebook? It's all Is censored. Like a Chinese firewall. It's no, all yeah, censored. it's all censored. So it takes it takes them learning how to like VPNs and proxies and getting around things and being able to communicate and gather and spread the videos and the messages. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult. Yeah. So is it is it fair to say that the uh, autocracy there is just less competent? than the Chinese and, and their ability to sort of use technology to suppress people? I don't know. That's a good question. But I, I think that it's a critical piece of this equation is their ability to continue maintaining access and sharing the content and getting the information out there. I mean, the difference in the last since 2009 till 2022 is absolutely huge. And I, I think that is the reason that, again, I said social media is reality. What exists, the ideas that are propagated and spread and proliferated on social media are incredibly important because everyone has like this. This is also a funny aspect of this is like if you're in the middle of like a protest and revolution in your country, but you're getting some like exposure on social media and you feel like people are backing you worldwide, like that gives you a lot of energy and authority. You're yeah. literally getting likes, you're getting views, you know, people are sharing like, hey, keep sharing. So-and-so is asking us to send her videos. There's like all these prominent influencers now that are like, send me your videos. I'll post them to my platform. So the more of these things get out, the 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 better. But in terms of like, what it takes. Well, first of all, um, I have no idea how this is going to, to play out either, but I can tell you that nobody knows what the solution, the right solution should be. There are different people trying to help make this happen. Even the Shah's son has been, a, so the Shah's son, 
the Shah that 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 died, mm-hmm. Reza Shah, his son has become a political figure, but he doesn't want to reinstall the monarchy. He just wants to get help the people get rid of the Ayatollahs. So uh and and this regime in general. So one of the things that he said recently, apparently, is that what the people need is for the military to turn against the regime and support the people. Now, that would be a great scenario because then we could reduce bloodshed. This whole thing could turn around if they flip the script and they start aligning with the people. Is is this the, the Revolutionary Guard or are they like a subset of the military? I guess it's, yeah, it's that. It's kind of all one and the same. Because yeah, that's got to be the way they, like, they, the only way, like, this small group of people could, like, hold power over such a majority would be through, like, extreme force like that, I would assume. Yeah, for sure. So if they turn with the people, it's going to take time. I mean, look, do I think that this is going to be successful? If it's not, my, my answer is it has to be. It literally has to be. If it's not, this country is going to go back another thousand years after this one. They will be under a fist for the remainder of time if they don't get through this one. They will. I don't see how they could not make this the one because if they don't make this the one, it's it's over. Like what other opportunity is there? It's the perfect time. The world has been in chaos for the last five years. Everyone has had enough. That idea has spread to other nations. They have the power of the internet. Like, sure, do they need more resources and and all of that stuff? Absolutely. But this is it. It's not going to get any better. It's not going to get any better. Well, I have one uh, one follow-up, which could be like kind of a closing remark. But like, uh, what would it take to get uh, to garner U.S. involvement? And like, you know, um, in previous uh, executive regimes, we had taken uh, different stances internationally where we'd say like we're pro-democracy. We want to like fight for individuals' freedoms. And and a lot of those endeavors have, have sort of turned out unfruitful um, to where it seems like the U.S. has turned a little more insular. But like, what would it take for the U.S. to like just be like, hey, we we support this uprising i mean does that go against our self-interest um you know like i, I kind of want to bring this home to yeah great question the, the political strategy question with iran it, first of all i cannot even believe we deal with this regime that we actually even engage with these guys this is one of those areas where again you know for all of his faults trump Played it right. He was like, fuck you guys. I'm not. Deals off the table. You are criminals. You treat your people like shit. You are sponsoring terrorism. No, no deal. (laughs) Like, it's not happening. And he froze billions of dollars of assets and he sanctioned the shit out of them and he put them into more turmoil. Why? So that the people would solve this. So that the people of this country would realize our leadership has put us in a situation where not only are we suffering, now we're suffering internationally. Now we we can't we can't do anything. These people can't pay for anything anymore. The the inflation rate in that country is like we talk about inflation here. The inflation there is just through the roof. You want to hear one really sad anecdote? Persian people are so proud of like they want to always treat people to like these huge 
extravagant dinners, right? And they want to have people over and it's all this like culture of hospitality. And the dinners, as Eric knows, are extravagant. Like it's like seven courses and, you know, the price of meat has gotten so high. This is heartbreaking that people can't have people over the way they used to because they can't cook them the meals that they used to. And that applies to eggs and chicken and all these other things that now are inaccessible even to the middle class. That's how bad things have gotten. It's sad. It's devastating. It's depressing. They can't have New Year's parties like they used to and have people over. They're, 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 it's literally a crisis of meaning these people are going through. So Trump comes in and goes, oh, no, we're not, we're not doing this. But then you got Biden. This is such a mistake talking, engaging these people, talking about unfreezing their assets, sending them billions of dollars. These, this billions of dollars that is going to go to the Iranian government is not going to, not a dime of it is going to go to the people. These are literally, I mean, I don't know if I've expressed this enough. These are the most corrupt, sick, awful people in the world, man. They just torture and abuse people. There is no sense in talking to them. They are, of course, after nuclear weapons as well. And they don't represent the Iranian people. But the Iranian people have never had a choice in the matter. So the best thing that we can do and hope for is for the people to be successful, to hope for the least amount of bloodshed, to hope that what does come as a result of this chaos is something of structure and meaning politically that represents the people and the ethos of this nation and this culture that allows for freedom of freedom across all fronts, democratic, whatever sort of system that they feel is best for them, that allows them to enter the conversation internationally again, that actually would allow them to become our ally. How incredible would that be for Iran to become an ally of the United States in a region that desperately needs stability? Right. Just funny that we still pick and choose and we will send billions of dollars to Ukraine for that for that uh, revolution or that that protection. But like when, when it comes to some other freedoms, it's like, eh, no, that's your problem. Interesting. Biden needs to come out way stronger. He kind of said like a little, so, hey, don't hurt your people. You know, don't don't fucking don't kill them. He needs to come out way stronger and say, like, we are absolutely in support of the people. This is a human rights atrocity. We aren't dealing with you anymore. And we're here to support the people however we can. That's what they need to do. I don't think they will. And they're just going to leave these people to figure it out for themselves. Hopefully the citizens of the world can help. And to help, I'm I'm serious. Like, you know, it's so funny. Like, I've always thought, what's the purpose of putting up images or changing your flag or all this? Like, I thought <laughs> it's so funny because I always thought this was just virtue signaling. I was completely wrong, Stephen. You're going to find this really interesting. I was completely wrong about this, actually. What I learned is that in situations like this, it's the only thing you have. This is is the communication, the messaging to share with the world what matters. And the more that you show support to that nation, actually, and its people, the more emboldened and powerful they feel to continue going. I've already said that, but I can't understate it. And I was so wrong about that. I, I didn't understand that. You only understand it when you can you know, kind of like have the empathy to, to, to fully put yourself there and imagine yourself on the front line. If you're on the front line, that's what you want. You want to feel the support of, of the world. So 
All right, we're, well, we're banned. We're banned from Iran. You and I are banned. <laughs> Steven could still go. We're banned. And, uh, you know, we need this. We need this revolution to be the one. Yeah, we really do. Well, I won't be going anytime soon. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I am I am more intrigued than I was previously after you told me that Anthony Bourdain said it was the greatest place on earth. So, yeah, I, 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 I kind of want to know why. But also, I, I kind of want to just watch the episode because I haven't seen it. Maybe that'll <laughs> maybe that'll be enough. Watch the episode and definitely check out uh, for those curious of what Iran is like. Um, there's some great travel vlogs on YouTube. Um, I, I particularly really like Drew Binsky's. He's such a friendly guy. By the way, just this is a uh, red-haired Jewish guy that's our age, and Bold. his favorite country. We'll get him. World. We'll get him on the pod one day. We'll get Drew yes. Binsky on here. Yes, we absolutely will. And we'll, we'll ask him about Iran because oh, I'm should. sure he has a lot of opinions on this. Yeah. I'm sure he's actually been posting about it. I haven't checked because I'm sure he's feeling a lot of things right now. And um, yeah, man, I would say like anything, uh, you know, I, I invite our community in particular to do what they can to share the content that they see. You know, even if you're not one of those that wants to like post it to your profile, you don't have a big social media presence. Please share this episode, at least, with your friends and family to give them a different perspective on what's going on. I think we provided a unique one today. And if you see something interesting and, you know, share it, DM it to some friends, get it out there, keep it going, because that's the only thing these people have right now. That's the only thing we can do. Yeah. And then thank, thank you. This was, a, this was a good learning episode for me. I really enjoyed... Uh, I really enjoyed it. I like to it the first sit time, back and and, and th- think a little bit sometimes. It was the first time we had our fearless leader cry on on pod. <laughs> oh damn it! <laughs> I did. I did see oh, a couple fuck. tears. So <laughs> check it out on YouTube. Oh, oh man! Well, it's a we lot. Appreciate guys. the passion. It's um, it's heartbreaking, and it means it means a lot to me. If that wasn't already apparent, so. Yeah, thanks, guys, for doing this episode. All right. Much love to you guys out there. Hope you enjoyed this pod, and we'll see you in the next episode. See you next time. Peace. Peace.